Let's put our eyes on the text. Can we? It's Philippians chapter 2 is where we are. We are looking at this book over about 25 weeks. Philippians is about partnership and Philippians 2 is really about selflessness. And those two things go together. So as we dive in again to this chapter, you're going to hear us talk about selflessness again. You may say, Todd, I'm growing weary of the same topic week after week. Well, we've got about three more weeks in this chapter, and I can assure you that topic is going to remain center stage. But don't grow weary because it is one of the core things we all wrestle with at all levels. In fact, I was reminded just last Thursday how easily selfishness comes to us. I was out for a morning jog. It was pretty early. And I don't know what mile I was on or where I was, but I was crossing, I think it is, uh, I want to say maybe it was Sharon and Peterson. and may, It may not have been Sharon, but it was right before the park there, and I was crossing the street, and I was approaching this intersection just as a podcast was ending. And so instead of, you know, telling my phone, play certain podcast or whatever, I just pick my phone out of my pocket while I'm just jogging. And I don't really jog. I think I just walk real fast. And so I'm trying to, you know, do that. And I became oblivious to the fact that I was actually now in an intersection. It was early. I just assumed the whole world wasn't awake yet. It was all about me. It was my intersection. It's my town, my jog. So I'm finding a new podcast, my foot hits the curb, I hit play, and I hear a voice from behind me. The passenger window is rolled down. He says, hey, you might want to think of others sometimes. It might be a good idea for your own safety. And little did I know, I had kind of got to the intersection, became self-absorbed in my podcast list and my jog, and a truck was trying to turn left. And had he not stopped, I would have been part of the pavement. But he was a good driver, and, and he was grinning, kind of kidding with me. I, actually, he was right. I should look both ways, check the scene out, right? But I, I just was absorbed in what I was doing. The minute I might have put at the curb and the podcast began playing, and I heard that voice, he grinned, drove off. I chuckled and realized, man, we can easily become absorbed in our own world, can't we? Now, there was no sin in that. I realized that. But it's an example of how quickly and how easily we forget about everyone else around us. Could somebody say amen? Because I suspect you've got an illustration, a story, a situation that wasn't sin either. But it is a situation that reminds you just how easily you can get absorbed into your own world and you can forget about other people's worlds. You put your own needs at the top of the list and you forget the other's needs. Can I just say to you that selfishness comes pretty naturally. <laughs> Selflessness only comes supernaturally. And that's what we've been seeing in Philippians chapter 2. As he's laid out for us multiple examples of selfless people. So your Bibles are open to Philippians 2, aren't they? Let's look at the third example of selflessness. It is Timothy. 
I'd remind you the first one is Jesus, and it is far more than just an example. I believe, as I taught you this several weeks ago, he's showing Christ to be the essence and source of selflessness. And then he lays out also himself as an example in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. He now comes to Timothy. He's going to give us Timothy's example of selflessness. Again, all of this is designed to help us understand what it looks like to think the same way, to be of the same mindset. This is the goal of Philippians 2, selflessness, which is really the key to partnership. Because partnership is when two people fight for each other's joy. We saw that in chapter 1 a good bit. We often think two people are fighting each other. But that's not true partnership. Partnership is when you fight for each other's joy. And that requires selflessness. Here's another example of it. I think you'll enjoy what we draw out of this from the text. I'll go to our lab this morning. So have your pen handy, your journals, your Bible. Let's see exactly what God would say to us. We put ourselves under the weight of the word because the word does the work. Here's what Paul would say to us. Verse 19, I'll begin reading. Follow along with me. He says, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. I love the word send. Here he's simply saying, my um, aim or my prayer is that I'll be able to send Timothy to you soon. Now notice why. So that I may be encouraged by news about you. So Paul is admitting, I want to send Timothy to you with the hope that he'll have news that Uh, that will encourage me, but this is not a selfish request because if you look back at verses 17 and 18, they were encouraged about news uh, concerning Paul. What was that news? According to verse 17 and 18, that he was pouring out his life as a drink offering on their behalf. He was giving everything he had for them. It was like a fight for their joy. They mattered to him. And now he's saying again, hey, I'm going to send Timothy and I want to hear kind of the same thing in return. So this is at least the second time we see this idea of mutual partner, uh, mutual expectations. It's kind of a partnership. We're both fighting for the joy of the other person through selfless action. So he's hoping that the news he hears from Timothy about the Philippian believers will be an encouragement. That's why he's sending Timothy. Now notice um, that the reason he sends Timothy, of course, is to hear from them, but the reason it's Timothy is explained in verse 20. We see the word for, which is an explanatory word. So here's why Timothy was chosen. And this is a startling verse. He says, I have no one else like-minded. Interesting word there, isn't it? And notice how he raises the level of this word with the idea that no one thinks this way like Timothy. Now, I don't know how Epaphroditus read this, but it sounds like, at best, Epaphroditus is in second place. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is a pretty exclusive club. He's saying nobody thinks the way Timothy thinks. He's like-minded in what way? In that he genuinely cares about your interests. So there's no ulterior motive. There's no hidden agenda. Timothy's not coming to work an angle. In other words, he's coming with pure, sincere, clear motives. And that's in contrast to what other people would do. Notice with the next phrase of verse 21, all. So notice the contrast between no one and all. So there's nobody who thinks like Timothy, genuinely concerned about your interest. Uh, he says here, all seek their own interest. Now, 
I wondered when I read this, who is all? Is it a general description of the human race? Could Paul be saying, hey, listen, Timothy's a unique cat. He kind of just has this ability to put others first, but everybody else were just, you know, pretty depraved and selfish. To me, that sounds generic and general, and these words are very specific. They're, they're precise, wouldn't you agree? So here's what I think is going on in the text, and I don't think thinking that's wrong. I just don't adopt that view. I think what the word refers to, the word all, is the list of those in chapter 1 who were preaching for false motives. Remember that list? He says, his imprisonment has caused boldness among some, and out of that some, there are those that preach from false motives. He then says, I'm glad they're preaching, but he does make the case that there is a group of preachers who got bold from Paul's imprisonment, but their aim, their motivation is insincere. It's impure. It's false. I think that's what all refers to. He's saying this, Timothy is not like all those guys. He's coming to you with sincere, clear, pure motives. He's not working an agenda. He has no ulterior purpose. He's not got a hidden motive. I love that about this verse. Isn't that good? I mean, what, what a partner. What a friend. What an ambassador. And here Timothy is exactly that. He's a, an emissary, an ambassador. He's being sent on behalf of Paul. And in one sense, Paul is saying this. When you get Timothy, it'll be as good as getting me. What a compliment. Now, at this point, in our journey through the text, you are thinking just like I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, that Timothy is like a little Paul. Like, wow, he's just saying nobody thinks as much like me as Timothy, and no one thinks about you like Timothy. Now, while that is true, that is a legitimate, and I must use this phrase, secondary observation of the text. Often we think that's the main point of the word like-minded. But let's let the text do its work. Notice what it says. These next three or four words, actually, it's where the punch is. It's the part of the text with the grip. Look what he says. Timothy is one of those peculiarly top-tier persons because he's like-minded. He has the interests, watch this, not that are false like all the other preachers who are disingenuous. He has those of Jesus Christ. When I read that, I did a double take because here's what I was expecting. I'll give it to you in the way I thought it would read. I'm going to send Timothy to you because nobody thinks as much like me as Timothy does. He's not like those guys who have ulterior motives. No, he's got your interest at stake, just like I do. That's kind of how I thought it should read. But it doesn't read that way. It says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. He's like-minded. So we're on the same page, yes, He's not like those preachers who have false motives. He actually has the interest of Jesus Christ. Paul escalates and moves this whole horizontal like-mindedness above him to Jesus Christ. He says, Timothy thinks like Jesus. Wow. No wonder Timothy could serve so selflessly. No wonder he could act in such a 
genuine, sincere way because he wasn't just trying to copy a person only. He wasn't making Paul his model. He was seeking to think like Jesus. It's way higher than Paul. Amen, church? I love the way this phrase just kind of grabs us. Oh, Timothy's not just like-minded with Paul. The text is saying he's like-minded with Jesus. That's the key to serving selflessly. Now watch this. While I have your attention, while we're in fifth gear, watch this. I think chapter 2, verse 21 is a pointer back to chapter 2, verse 5. In your Bibles, draw an arrow. Write the reference out. Because what does chapter 2, verse 5 say to us? It's Paul's exhortation to the church to adopt the mindset of Jesus Christ. Some translations say, have this same mindset in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Timothy is an example of obedience to that exhortation. Another way, Paul doesn't say, hey, adopt the mindset of Christ, live selflessly, and then say, like Timothy, who thinks a lot like me. That's not what Paul did. Paul said, have the mindset of Christ, like Timothy, who thinks like Jesus. And so this is a beautiful text to show us something. That like-mindedness is really important, but not like-mindedness just with each other, which he does call for in the text. Chapter 2, verse 1. I mean, we're not going to get around that. Paul calls for the church to think as one, to think the same way, to be unified. Not uniformity, but unity. He's calling for that. But here's the reason why it can happen. Because we're all thinking like Jesus. He's the supreme model goal, essence, fuel. He's the template, the pattern. It's Jesus. And because Timothy thought this way, look what it says about him. That they knew his proven character. In other words, you know this is true, that he thinks like Jesus because you've seen him live his life. How did they see that? When he served with Paul in the gospel ministry. Just jot Acts 16, if you would. It's when the church at Philippi was planted, probably around 51 A.D. This book's written in the early 60s, probably. Not 1960, the early 60s of the first century, right? So 10 years prior to this, they remembered Timothy helping plant the church, and they watched Timothy serve with Paul in a very selfless fashion and in a very relational fashion. Don't you love like a son with a father? In other words, this does lend to the idea that, that Timothy was like a, a mini Paul. I see this with some of you and your families. I'll know you as a parent, and then I'll hang around your kids, and um, I might say, wow, you're, you're like a mini Joel. Or I'll say, you're, my, you're like a mini Amy, and your daughter, your son is just like you. And that's a compliment. They're serving, they're trusting Jesus, they're following as a disciple, they look a lot like their parents. Paul here is saying, yeah, Timothy acts a lot like me. He, he has these same uh, traits, but I didn't produce them. I simply gave the platform where you could see that he thinks like Jesus, and that's why he acts like Jesus. So he served with Paul. It proved his character. And so notice this next word, therefore. It's very similar to the four up here. I hope to send him. So we're back to these ideas of sending. He's sending Timothy. That's what he hopes to do. Why? Because Timothy 
has proven himself to be a like-minded servant with Jesus first. Yes, he looks a lot like Paul. Paul's provided the platform for Timothy to, to exhibit these traits, but it's Jesus who's really produced them in Timothy. That's why he wants to send Timothy. Notice this last phrase, as soon as I see how things go with me. So Paul's apparently looking at the surroundings, thinking about his situation. And the sense of the text is, especially verse 24, when he says he's confident that he himself may go. The sense is, and this may seem a little kind of odd to you, but it seems like he's saying, if I can go, I will. But if I can't, Timothy will be a perfect fill-in. That's kind of what he's saying. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how were things going with Paul? It's a good question. As you recall, this book is one of the prison epistles written while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. This came after, of course, this at least second and third missionary journeys. Um, Philippi was planted on the second missionary journey. I think Paul revisited it on his third. So he's had multiple visits there. Was there a fourth visit? Uh, or excuse me, a third visit that 24 alludes to, we don't know. The jury's out. There's no real historical record to say he did or he didn't. Some think he did on his way to Spain. Some think that got interrupted. So have fun with that. Write a book, write a story. Who knows? The point is, he does seem to say, I, I want to go, but in case I can't, Timothy is the perfect guy for the job. And maybe you're wondering, okay, uh, why couldn't Paul go? Because he was in prison. And I was in Alcatraz just last week. Julie and I were visiting California for a few days. And when I was in Alcatraz, I took a chance to get inside one of the cells. And I was thinking about Paul. And I thought, even in this moment when Paul's saying, I'll see how it goes with me, it's amazing to me that he's in a cell far worse than this five by eight one you're seeing here. He's in one probably somewhat underground He's probably chained, if not to guards at some point. He's probably uh, confined. It's probably dark a lot. He may be in a structure. In, uh, in the book of Acts, we do know of a structure that was affected by the earthquake. Chained. Uh, and, and so Paul, even in that situation, he's thinking of the church and what's best for them and who to send and how to get him there. And so in this picture, I'm just thinking, man, what would it be like to be in a cell? It seemed, if I was in the cell like that, I would be thinking of one person, me. How can I get out? Who's coming to my aid? And yet Paul, even in this moment, is a selfless example of thinking of others. And so he's hoping he can go, but if not, he's saying Timothy's the ideal candidate. And why? Because Timothy is like-minded with Jesus. So I want to just briefly take all this together and show you a simple take-home principle that comes out of this brief narrative okay because when you look at the text the real key word is the word like-minded and you must know who's he like-minded with jesus christ that's who he's serving so if you think about this the word like-minded is serving as the hinge for all the thoughts in these six verses he's saying timothy's like-minded and so that's what sources my decision to send him Timothy's like-minded because I've seen it in his service. So everything's pointing back to the fact that Timothy thinks the right way, but he's, he's elevating that and saying it's not that he thinks like me, even though he does. 
I'm saying to you, he's the one I'm going to send because he thinks like Jesus Christ. He's adopted the mindset of Christ. And so it's caused me to realize that a selfless type of life starts with a selfless type of mind. Notice the word here is like-minded. It's not like-acting. It's not like behavior. Paul starts where everything starts, in the mind, in the heart, how we think. And so I think a clear principle from these six verses, which may seem like a travel addendum, some notes about someone's journey, you know. The truth is there's a really hidden principle, a gem in here that I don't want you to miss, and that's this. Selflessness, which is the goal of the chapter and all the examples, begins with like-mindedness. We often want to make that like-actionness. I'll just do what they do. That's not a bad idea, but it's at best a second idea. Here's the best first idea. I want to think like Jesus. I want to adopt the mindset of Jesus. That's Philippians 2.5. And that's what this example showcases that Timothy knew to act like Jesus, to serve like Jesus, we must think like Jesus. So church, hear this, the take-home principle. Selflessness begins with like-mindedness, but add this in there, to Jesus. Do I want us thinking generally the same way in unity? Yes, we want that. But that won't happen if we're not all thinking like Jesus. And so the like-mindedness must be the mindset of Jesus. You could say it like this. This is a little longer. It's a little plainer in some ways. But you could say that selfless serving starts with selfless thinking. That's pretty simple too. But it's even shorter to simply say this. Selflessness begins with like-mindedness. To Jesus. He's the one we want to think like. This really is just an echo of a single verse in the book to your right. The book of Colossians. In which, watch this sovereignic connection in scripture. We're told in Colossians 3 to seek the things that are above. But how does one actively seek? It starts by verse 2. Setting your mind on things above. Now watch the next phrase. In which he says, uh, not on things of the earth. For you died. The key to selfless living is to realize you died. And Christ is now living his life through you. That's a whole new mindset. So you set your mind on things above. And you realize, yeah, I died. My old man is buried. And my mindset, my interests are now those of Jesus. He's my commander. He's my shepherd. My life is his and he'll live his life through me. I'm not working Jesus to get my way. Jesus is working in me to do his will. Does that make sense? So this is how this all works. It's the mindset of Christ in us. It's Philippians 2, 5. 
So we think the right way. That translates then into acting the right way. Selfless thinking, like-mindedness to Jesus, will turn into, translate into, look like selflessness for others. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, Todd, that seems impossible. I don't know how to live that way. I don't to think that way. The only way to think that way is through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which showcases and highlights the selflessness of Jesus. It's Philippians 2, uh, 8 through 11, all over again. 6 through 11, really. In which we see Jesus humiliating himself, being crucified, being raised, and ascending. It's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And when we believe that and trust that, God fills us with His Spirit. He saves us and He empowers us to actually live this way, to think like His Son. So our position and our power all come from Jesus, all come from the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So if you're thinking, Todd, I can never do that. You're right. You can never do this apart from Jesus. And if you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never put your faith and the Son of God is the only way to be right with God. Could I this morning pastorally plead with you, urge you to repent of sin and turn to Jesus and know that that's the only way you're going to be able to live a selfless life. Not by copying a human model, not by looking to a human hero. As good as those may be at times, they will wear out. That human hero, that model will fail you at some point. Jesus never will. And he will empower you with his life so that he lives his life through you, which is the selfless life. It can happen no other way. You must be born again to live a selfless life. So if you're here this morning thinking, I'm not sure if I've ever been saved. I'm not sure I'm born again. I've not trusted Jesus. Man, would you right now just ask God to save you through Jesus would sound something like this. Dear God, I do believe that Jesus Christ is your son. Fully God, fully man who lived on the earth came and he died in my place, took my penalty. And God, you've promised that whoever believes in Jesus' death and resurrection and confesses that he's Lord, that it was raised from that, you've promised to save all who believe. So God, this morning, because I know I can never live this way without you, would you give me Jesus, save me, empower me, to do exactly this, not just momentarily, not just initially, but for my life. Lord, make my life your life. And God will do that. He will, by position and power, give you the supernatural ability to live a selfless life. Not perfectly every time or from the, you know, from the very first moment perfectly, but incre incrementally, increasingly. God will empower you to think and live like Jesus. That's what the gospel does. Now, maybe the question you're asking is, are there some practical tips, Todd, for thinking like Christ, for adopting this mindset? So I want to give you, as we close, about three take-home practices. I gave you a take-home principle, what the text, I believe, says to us. Let me give you three take-home practices 
that come from the context and actually even the surrounding emphasis of the book. I didn't just make these up. I'm not just thinking of in my head. I drew them out of the context of this immediate passage and the book. Three things that I think will help us think like Christ, adopt the mindset of Christ, all right? Write these down. First of all, prayer. Just write down prayer. You may think this is common. You may think, well, we knew that. You're right, you did. But I'll repeat to you what we've been saying for years. Prayer is our, say it church, first and best action. And this goes especially uh, to pursuing selflessness. It is what God has to empower in you through the gospel, the life and death of Christ. And so pray that God would grant you supernatural Holy Spirit-empowered ability to live selflessly. Remember in the first illustration, I just shared with you that selfishness comes pretty naturally. We would all say that's exactly right. In fact, just last night, Julie and I were discussing something between us. I just said to her, I said, it's amazing how easy I can be selfish. <laughs> and she said, me too. We just both admitted that that comes pretty quickly and pretty naturally. Selflessness actually is a supernatural thing given by God. And so pray for God to give you that. Now, I base that on the prayer in Philippians 1, in which the words are different, but I think it's a synonymous prayer. Philippians 1, Paul says, I'm praying that your love would abound more and more. It's Philippians 1, 9. You know what that sounds like to me? That you would think of other people more and more. Like that's what love is. Agape love is desiring the highest good for someone else, working for their interests, fighting for their joy. Paul's saying in Philippians 1, my prayer is that your love will get deeper and deeper. I think it's a, it's a synonymous way to say, guys, I want you to think of others' interests. I want you to be selfless. So can we just first and foremost say we're going to pray and ask God to supernaturally work in our life in this way. I loved the testimony last week from one of the guys who got baptized, Doug. I hope you heard it, in which he said, God began to change his desires. God began to change the way he thought. And he began to act differently. He began to do things he didn't really plan to do. He wasn't like, in one sense, like, I got to change and do this. He said, God just changed me on the inside. I thought and, and felt and desired differently and he realized God had saved him regenerated him and so then he began to do things that's what we're talking about God doing something in us that cannot be explained or stopped that is that starts with prayer humbly repentingly passionately asking God Lord turn me into a selfless person give me your life not my life help me to live that so prayer the first take-home practice to really begin to think like and act like Christ. Second one would be community. Now, I say this because when you're not in community, that means you're alone a lot. And I just want to say this factually and yet frankly, when you're alone a lot, you only have one person to think about. Correct? So isolation is a breeding ground for selfishness. Even if you don't mean for it to happen necessarily, 
it's, it's almost like a default result because there's no one else in your life you've got to pay attention to. And so all of your attention, the bulk of your um, actions, they're kind of, not kind of, they are all directed towards one person, you. So do you, do you see what I'm saying? Isolation breeds selfishness. Community enhances selflessness. I didn't say it's easy in community. But I would say to you, it's necessary. I mean, the minute you get into community and you meet someone with a different perspective, a different preference, a different personality, you're like, hey, I like isolation. That's what we think sometimes, right? This is hard. But it's actually uh, those moments in which we can practice selflessness that help us think and act more like Jesus. So get in a community with God's people where you'll be forced to think about how you can uh, serve others. And, and think like Jesus and put this into practice. Community is a fantastic laboratory. Now, I want to be very transparent with you here for a few minutes. Um, I hope I'm always honest, but I'm going to be blatantly transparent. I think often that community is hard because many people have damage from their past. They open up in an environment, they trusted someone, or they agreed to be known and to know, and it just didn't turn out real well. I'm not belittling that, I'm admitting it. And there are people in this room, even in our different campuses, who are right now saying, that's exactly right, that's me. And so coming out of the corners, stepping out of the shadows, agreeing to know and be known is very hard for you. I, I don't want to dismiss that, but neither do I want to excuse that. God calls for all of us to be in community. So can I speak with those who may have an abusive situation, maybe one that just wasn't healthy at all, Maybe you were part of it and you look back and realize, wow, that was some terrible behavior. Maybe you were victimized by it. I don't know. Can I just ask you to do this? Would you take one step towards community? I've learned that often we get to the end of a journey one step at a time. And sometimes it can sound like we're saying, hey, can you be at, you know, the end of the journey tomorrow? I just want to ask if every single person in our church would at least take one step towards community. Maybe it means for you just a conversation about what a small group looks like. So you want to call Pastor Travis or meet with one of our elders or maybe a small group leader and say, hey, what's it like in the group? I want to be in a group, but I'm pretty scared. Or maybe for you it's like, you know what? I should get in a group. I'll start next week or next month. I don't know what your next step is, but I will say this to you. Isolation is never good for anybody. It's a breeding ground for selfishness. And so let's take a step away from environments that breed that and let's move towards laboratories where we can experience it and practice selflessness. It will be hard, it will be slow, but it will be healthy for you. Does that make sense? I just want to encourage you. Communities God-given and God-ordained. Don't avoid it. It's one of the laboratories. It's one of the practices for those who've learned how to live and think in selfless ways like Jesus. Because they're around God's people. They watch it. They talk about it. They see it. They learn. And they begin to practice it as well. Third take-home practice would be opportunity. 
You could substitute the word availability. It's simply having eyes to see the next step. Now watch this. And then instead of only analyzing, you're willing to act, to do something. This is seen in Philippians several times in which Paul talks about how they were the only church to give when things were difficult, how they were the only church to stick with Paul in uh, times uh, when things weren't, uh, you know, easy. He commends them for their courage to act, not just analyze. And I think this is one of the weaknesses of many churches, that often we are good at analysis, so much so that often we talk ourselves right out of doing the very thing we ought to do. And I want to flip that. Can I just be frank with you? I don't want to get rid of analysis, but I want action to be the primary thing that we do. Because even if you foul it off, you took a good swing, we'll get another bat, right? Maybe next time we get a single. Maybe one time it's a homer. But I want to be in the batter's box, not in the color commentator's box. I want to be in the game. I want to be involved where the action is. I don't want to be the armchair quarterback analyzing everybody and everything and never doing anything. So I want to call you as a church to a posture of seeing opportunities and then knowing the risk, still taking the steps of action and trusting God with every one of those. Hearing that, just know that I think as much as we do struggle with that at times, I think we're taking some really good steps in being a people of action and opportunity. In fact, this summer, I was so blessed to hear this. As you know, we've been trying to impact local ministries uh, this summer. Sheila Miguez is one of our connections coordinator with some of our local partners. And so with Friendship Center, uh, which is an inner city ministry in Des Moines, the Agape Pregnancy Resource Center, as well as Freedom for Youth, We've offered the summer on a weekly basis to serve them in some way. And so she's created environments for our small groups to go and serve each of these ministries every week. Three ministries every week for the summer. It's called Share Joy Des Moines. When I heard about it, I was like, wow, that's, that's a lot of opening. That's a lot of things to do. Thursday, I got word that there's only two slots left for the whole summer for all three. And I want to commend you, small group leaders, for hearing the call and taking action. It's amazing to me that there's probably 20 or 30 of those available. Everyone's filled up with people from small groups willing to serve and take action on opportunity. Just two slots left. Fantastic. Thank you for having a, a posture of action, not just analysis, for seeing opportunities. Here's why this matters. Because I believe personally, I think I can prove this scripturally, but that's not the point of this message. But I will just say this to you briefly. I believe it's in availability and opportunity where God gifts his people. You see, most people in church are concerned about definability. Here's my gift. Here's my personality. So when I see just the perfect place, then I'll do it. And we're more about definability as opposed to availability. But I believe God can gift his church with any gift he desires. And so willingness is what God's looking for, not necessarily mastery. 
He's looking for availability, not always ability, because he has the ability and will gift you with what's needed in the moment. So I say, and I've said this to you before, if you see a need, try and meet it and watch God's spirit gift you in the moment in a supernatural way to do exactly that, meet the need. When that happens, who gets the credit? Not you and not me. We're just servants. We didn't quite know what we were doing. We just knew a help was needed, so we got involved, and then God showed up. And that's what a spiritual gift is. It's God's power going public. Who doesn't want more of that? Watch, church doesn't need more of that. But often we talk ourselves right out of it because of analysis. I'm encouraging us to combine our analysis with more action so that we see God's Spirit unleash His gifts upon His church so the world can look back and say, wow, God's among you. That's what we need. So when you see opportunities, yes, have the right discernment that leads to action. That's how we breed and live and think in selfless ways. That will happen as we think more like Christ. We'll live more like Christ.